It's a segment I always look forward to when I'm filling in. Keith Baldry, kind enough to join me. Keith, good morning. Hey, Rob. Well, uh, a lot of stuff that we can get into, and I think what we'll start with, just because of where you're located, let's talk about that finance update for the province. There's a huge deficit. I think this even caught me a little by surprise. Let's try to break this one down. Yeah, so it's interesting. I was just talking to a colleague about there was a time when a huge deficit would generate all sorts of media coverage. And it was just like, like take people's breath away, $6.7 billion deficit. But I think COVID, uh, the experience with COVID has basically uh, knocked a lot of deficit talk um, out of orbit. So we suddenly got used to, at the federal level and provincial level, of governments losing vast amounts of money because of the COVID situation, the emergency, the pandemic, you know, hundreds of thousands of people being out of work, all these massive aid programs, stuff that wasn't there before. So I've, maybe one day we'll get back to when deficits were a huge things, but I just don't think they're the big thing that they used to be. In terms of this particular deficit, so what's driving it are two things that are kind of extraordinary. One is the wildfire costs, which is now approaching almost a billion dollars. I mean, I've got a chart on my desk that goes back 20 years of wildfire costs, and we, you know, we never ever got close to something like that before on an annual basis, which is an indication of just the new reality when it comes to fighting fires. And then the ongoing volatility with natural gas revenues are down more than a billion dollars. You put those two things together, and that alone accounts for uh, the big increase uh, in the deficit. But I have to say what grabbed my eye in that uh, financial update was some of the forecasts for next year where the economy is expected to really slow down, economic growth cut in half. Uh, one line just nonchalantly says housing prices will continue to go up. So for all this fixation on getting housing under control and prices down, buried in this document is a reference that, no, housing starts are actually going to be fewer than this year, and the prices are going to continue to go up. So you put those two things together, the economy is not headed for good times. A huge deficit, slow economic growth, and a lot of indicators just not going the right way. Keith, I want to circle back on that wildfire cost because you had mentioned your chart and you'd talked about the $1 billion mark. Can we break down what that that bill looks like? Like how much of it is just lost land and lost homes? How much of it is the the equipment used and the people? How, How does that get to $1 billion? Yeah, so a big chunk of that, and I haven't got the percentage at me, but we were given at one point, a big chunk of that near billion dollars is um, aerial firefighting, helicopters and planes. Those cost a lot of money. Um, there's also the travel cost of bringing in firefighters from other jurisdictions. Um, most of it, that, that cost is equipment, is my understanding, and very expensive equipment to operate. It's not necessarily lost land, because a lot of this is crown land that doesn't factor into in, into costs. But, um, and this, of course, uh, we didn't have huge interface fires, which is loss of personal property and such, but we, you know, mass evacuations and such. But equipment and manpower takes up uh, the vast majority of that billion dollars. I mean, we had, I think, wildfire service has 25 500 people fighting fires at one point in August. Uh, you start doing the math on that, how much they get paid, and then you get the equipment cost in there. Those costs can uh, add up uh, quite a bit. In fact, I'm looking at this chart that goes back to 20, 2008. So the 10-year average uh, going into this year of how much it was costing to fight wildfires every year was about $317 million. That's the 10-year average. The highest price, the highest cost was back in 2017, $649 million. So we've beat that. We're still fighting fires, by the way. We're not out of this thing yet. Yep. 
So 649 was the highest ever figure until this year. And you can add another $300 million onto that to come up what we're spending this year, which is just an extraordinary figure. I mean, there, people don't realize there's actually no budget for fighting wildfires. It's, it's just a line item. It's a placeholder in the budget to say, well, you know, earmark this. But it is going to be what it is. I mean, it's not like fire, wildfire services. Well, we spent our money that's in the budget. We're not going to fight fires anymore. <laughs> uh, you just keep fighting the fires until they're, until they're out, until they cease to be a threat to the community. So... Billion dollars this year, maybe a billion dollars next year. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, Keith Baldry is our Global News Legislative Bureau Chief joining us here on the Mike Smith Show. Uh, Want to switch gears. There's an announcement coming up just a matter of moments when it comes to the healthcare sector that masks in medical settings are back, booster updates, respiratory illness season. Let's get into this. Uh, what do you think the public's reaction is going to be to this announcement? Well, it's, you know, we're going to hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. The joke was that we're putting the band back together. You know, these these two held briefings on a daily basis yep. for the beginning of the pandemic. This is the first briefing in months. Uh, so we're going to get a, a complete range of things. It's uh, The mask rules are coming back to health care, which, you know, because it's only health care settings, I uh, don't think it's it's a huge thing for, for many people. It's only those who visit or have to be treated at a hospital or a doctor's office or long-term care home. Uh, but there's no there's no testing requirements. There's no vaccine mandates. Uh, new ones going forward will continue to apply to healthcare workers, vaccination requirements. But there's none of that new stuff. There's no bans on crowds. So we're not going back to the old... If you recall, you know, masks in all public indoor spaces, a limit on crowds, um, testing, show your vaccine passport. None of that's coming back. It's simply a return to the mask requirement in healthcare settings. We're also going to get an update on where we're at with COVID. Just talked to some people, the legislature comparing notes. Everyone seems to know someone right now who's tested positive for COVID and is fairly ill. Um, You know, we had the finance minister yesterday, Katrina Conroy. She had to delay her financial report by two weeks because she, as she disclosed at the news conference, she was extremely sick with COVID for a good more than a week. So COVID's still out there. It's still going around. I get my daily tracker from the New York Times every day. I've been getting it for three years, three and a half years, the coronavirus tracker. Well, cases are up about 11% in the states week to week. And that we're going to get similar numbers in BC, an update uh, this afternoon as well. Also an update on where we're at with vaccinations uh, supply, both in terms of boosters uh, for people and also where we're at with the flu vaccine, where we're at with vaccines for the RSV virus. Uh, we're going to get updates on that as well. And then finally, an update where we're at with uh, our very crowded hospitals right now. There's a lot of people occupying a hospital bed, and that number is expected to grow over the next few months as we head into respiratory illness season. So a lot of news at noon. We're going to be carrying that uh, news conference live on Global's Noon News. All right, we'll take a break here. By the way, I was one of those people in the hospital and spent all seven days of my stay in the hallway and never, never made my way into. I felt like yeah. I was, uh, I was felt like a starfish at the aquarium. Everybody just walking <laughs> past me, but uh, we'll save you, that for a rainy day. <laughs> you occupied what's called a surge bed. I uh, was the king of the surge bed. Yes. Yeah, well, glad you're back at it though. Before we get to these calls, Keith, another BC ferry uh, coming in for repairs. The Spirit of Vancouver, according to the union, is headed to the dry dock to work on its hull. What does this do, not not just to the reputation of BC Ferries? Is it the right time to do it, the wrong time to do it, or do they just have to do it? In fact, the Thanksgiving weekend, which is coming up soon, is a very busy time on BC Ferries. And, you know, the Spirit Spirit Ferries are the old reliables. 
you know, these things usually don't. I mean, you can always depend on the spirits. In fact, when I take BC fairies, I don't take it very often anymore. But my wife and I would always make sure we we caught a spirit fairy, which runs on the odd hours. They're bigger, they're roomier, they're more reliable. The coastal ones are are kind of longer and narrow. I don't think as uh, as comfortable as sailing as the spirits. So the spirits, it's kind of disheartening. If you're a regular ferry user, the spirits run between Tawasin and Swartz Bay. Um, that's a ferry that's suddenly going in for service. Uh, they, from time to time, have been in service, but they tend to be more reliable than the coastal ferries. And the coastal Renaissance, of course, is still under repair there, and that's that's a much lengthier repair. So hopefully, what's happening with the Spirit Ferry, that Spirit of Vancouver Island, is not going to be a lengthy uh, dry dock because uh, that would present some challenges for the Thanksgiving Day uh, travel weekend. And we are going to get an update from ferries on that, so we'll see what their plans are. You know, it's interesting because. I feel like BC Ferries can do no right sometimes. Like as soon as this information comes out, yeah. you just assume that this is another, you know, kicking of the can. And communications aside, I mean, the hull, if it needs repair, I mean, that's the part of the boat that keeps it in the water. So I'd imagine <laughs> it's got to happen, right? Well, yeah, we'll see how serious the job that repair uh, job has to be. And you're right, BC Ferries can't seem to buy a break these days. I mean, they've got some some vessel breakdowns, but they have an ongoing problem with staff. Um, they they have to be, of course, qualified staff, fully trained staff, and uh, it's not like they can go, walk in and hire someone off the street. I mean, even even people who work in the galleys and the kitchens on BC Ferries have safety certificates, and you don't get those overnight. Uh, so they've got an ongoing issue when it comes to making sure they have enough people on board to meet Transport Canada requirements on staffing levels, uh, which are quite high. We had Richard Fadden on this show a little bit earlier this morning, and maybe you've talked about this with Mike already, but uh, David Eby coming forward saying that Ottawa's promising changes to Canada's espionage laws. Uh, Richard Fadden said, yeah, this information should be available to premiers and those that need to be in the know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Eby says basically he got briefed, but he was given access to information you could basically get on Google, he said. You know, there was nothing, nothing really... Um, uh, you know, off on deep background, even available for him. I'm not sure premiers need to know a lot of this stuff. You know, attorney generals, I know historically would get access to a lot of information from RCMP. They just wouldn't necessarily run by the premier. Uh, there's usually a bit of a church and state uh, relationship sometimes between a premier's office and the AG's office, for example. You know, we had a famous instance back in Bill Vanderzam's time when he was premier where he got a little too close to an RCMP investigation involving himself that forced the uh, then Attorney General to resign in protest because he thought the Premier was too close to a police file. So I think Premiers have to be a little careful sometimes of, of insisting on knowing everything that needs to be known about things as exotic as espionage. Um, but again, that seems to be new territory, so perhaps the, when is, uh, if the laws are going to get changed, I'm not sure they're going to get changed to the point where the likes of David Eby or Doug Ford or whoever or Danielle Smith are going to be able to walk into a CSIS office and say, show me all the files. I, I remember listening to a conversation you had with Mike and, and Mike brought up the question of, you know, what is too much information? Because there are certain things that need to be uh, limited by how many eyes are seen on this. Is, is David Eby taking advantage of a situation here in British Columbia or is there validity in his request? Well, I, I can see his frustration. I mean, he's he's in a place that uh, that um, you know we've got this extraordinary situation of you know the assassination of a, of an activist, and he there's political ramifications to that. So I guess he wants to know 
um, what's going on and is frustrated that as premier he doesn't have access to it. But I, I again, I'd be surprised if premiers are going to be given just this wide open access to a lot of espionage files. I mean, you could argue the spooks sometimes are a little too tight-lipped with their information, but, you know, who's to draw the line and determine what should be made uh, available to a politician rather than a non-political professional? All right, I'm going to bring through a call here. Rob in Chilliwack's got a question about the uh, the lay of the land politically. Rob, good morning. Keith and I are waiting for your thoughts. Yeah, hey, good morning. Hey, I just question for Keith here. I know, Keith, the other day you mentioned that uh, this race for the next, uh, who's going to be the next premier and who's going to run the provinces, you, you, I think you had said it'll be the NDP or the BC United. Um, but I'm just wondering with the latest polls and all this and what the NDP you know, they've kind of, I don't know, I think they've stepped in it a bit here with the failing grade on poverty, 50% feel worse off than last year. And this is the key thing I want to ask you about, Keith, in terms of leader approval. David Eby, NDP, down 7%. The Green, Sonia Personeau, down 4 Kevin Falcon, BC United, down 9 John Rustad, BC Conservatives, up 7%. So I'm just, are we in for a sea change? Is there a tectonic shift? Is something happening, changing in our province? I just, I wanted your opinion, Keith. Thanks. Well, um, thanks, Rob. Uh, well, you know, we're in we're into some interesting lay of the land here. So, yeah, so it's an extraordinary situation where the BC Conservative Party, which has not been a political animal in BC for decades. I mean, you have to go back to the 1970s to see two Conservative MP, MLAs in the House, early 70s. There was one elected in 78 in a by-election, but that didn't last long. So they've really not been a factor. Suddenly, Rustad is booted out of the B.C. United Caucus, or then B.C. Liberal Caucus, and he joins the B.C. Conservatives. He recruits or gets another MLA from the B.C. United Caucus. They suddenly have official party status in the House. They're going to have a much bigger profile. This is reflected in the polls. So now, does the Conservatives replace United as a party? Um, that seems to be another big leap of uh, an assumption that I just don't see happening. The latest poll that we had showed that um, the NDP is still flying high at you know 48%. David Eby, is, Rob says he's down seven points, but he's still at 51% approval. I mean, these are these are numbers that if an election were held today, the NDP would get you know upwards of 60 seats um, and just have a massive majority because the opposition farther far from replacing the NDP as the government. The opposition is split between two parties right now, the B.C. Conservatives and the B.C. United. And if those two parties split the vote, well, history shows us the NDP wins in a cakewalk. So unless one of those parties can replace the other almost with 100 percent, the NDP has got a clear path to victory. All right. Very quickly for you, Keith, before we let you go, Roberto Luongo, uh, he's going into the Ring of Honor. Should that be a retired number or is the Ring of Honor fine by you? Well, you know, you can argue this. I, I love this argument in uh, in sports. I, I think the Ring of Honor is uh, is great. I think numbers should be used again. I mean, you got uh, the Montreal Canadiens, for example, have retired. I think a couple numbers a couple of times, but players have come back and used them from time to time. I think Howie Morenza's number was retired until Dickie Moore used it for for the Habs. So I think the Ring of Honor is a pretty big honor, but I think numbers can be used onwards because I don't. You don't want to get to the point where suddenly you've got goaltenders wearing the number 105 because all the other numbers are taken. Uh, Keith, I'm impressed by your Habs knowledge. Good on you for that. All right, very cool. Thank you for this, Keith. Let's do it again soon. See you later.